Go ahead and turn to Esther. Esther chapter nine, we are at the end. Not at the end of, not the end of church, we're just at the end of, yes, our last week, guys, thanks for being here the last five years. No, we're just at the end of Esther. <laughs> My wife laughed at that, she liked that. I always have some support right here in the front row. Esther chapter nine, we're in our last week of the book of Esther, and we're gonna be uh, hitting these last two chapters. Well, gospel hope, let me say that, those two words again, gospel and hope, gospel hope, it actually runs uh, as a theme through the book of Esther, even though we may not have talked about it that blatantly, but this hope, this pervasive gospel hope, this hope that we get modeled for us in Esther that actually points to Jesus Christ, uh, actually runs kind of like a river all the way through the book. And what's great about gospel hope, what's important for your sake and my sake about gospel hope is that it reigns us in, okay, hope, and more specifically, not just any hope, not just generic, cheap hope, but gospel hope, it reigns us in. And some of you all, you need to be lassoed this morning. You need to be lassoed by gospel hope because you find yourself in a really hopeless place. Some of you need to be sobered by gospel hope because you're hoping in things that could literally collapse before the service ends, right? It's kind of like your kids. Sometimes they're, man, they're, they're, uh, they're mopey, right? Have you ever had a mopey kid? Uh, maybe you have a mopey kid right now and they need to be reminded of how gosh darn good they have it. Um, and some of your kids, man, you know what this is like. They're way too confident. Man, they just think they're invincible. So they, you know, they stand on the edge of a glass table juggling a cat and a set of knives at the same time, right? Because we're all horrible parents, right? That's, the, that's the, the, the end game in that. Neither one of those things is any good. In reality, what both of those kinds of hope lack is they lack hope and they lack perspective. So what Esther has done for us over these last seven weeks is it's kind of put hope in a particular kind of perspective for us because Christians have an unusual hope. We have a very peculiar kind of hope when you break it all down. It's peculiar because it's the only hope that's truly hope. We've talked about that a lot through the years here at Substance. It's the only hope that anyone actually and truly desires, but it's also a hope that requires constant removal and replacement. And here's what I mean by that. You have to remove the hope constantly that you have uh, in anything but God and then place it fully and totally back on God for it to actually be what we would define and what the Bible defines uh, as hope. Now, we have an, an, an electric oven range that I hardly ever get close to, like ever. And it's not because I'm a dude, it's because, it's because my wife would rather me not get near the oven, if truth be told, right? She's better with the oven. But we have this electric oven range in our house and sometimes very occasionally I'll, I'll place a pan over one of the burners. Not because I think that if I do that, food just magically like sprouts out of it. That's, I, I mean, I'm a, little, I'm a little smarter than that. Uh, but what happens is I'll put the pan on one of the burners. I'll turn on the heat. I'll come back in five minutes and realize that my pan is still cold because number one, I'm an idiot. Because two, I didn't place it on the burner that is actually burning right? That's what's happening. That pan could sit there until the end of time and never get any warmer unless the house burns down, right? And then it might heat up a little bit. But our hope, our hope is kind of like that. 
That's a little clue into what gospel hope actually is. It needs to be placed on an object that won't fail, that won't disappoint, that will live up to its intended purpose. You want a hope today, like I do, that is going to live up to its intended purpose in the ways in which we define hope. And I'll venture to say that we all kind of define it the same way. We all might give different answers, but we all want the outcome to be the same when we talk about hope. John Piper, this is what he says about hope. He says, our hope in God isn't just a wish. It isn't just merely a dream, he says, but it is a sure confidence that what God says will happen, will happen. That's really the only kind of hope that is actually going to be of any use to you and of any use to me. So all through the book of Esther, what we have been seeing is this silent stream, really, of God's hope running through the middle of what appears to be, really, as we go chapter to chapter, it just seemed like uncontrolled chaos at the end of the day. And of course, now that we're at the end of the book, it's easier to see that, right? But I'd like to make the case that you can see it in the pages of your own life, too, if you have the courage to look back, like I just prayed a minute ago, and recount today what you couldn't see then. Now, granted, some of you might have to look harder than others because our stories are different. But like all hope, it only exists today because of, listen to me, what we can't see tomorrow. The Apostle Paul says it. He calls it out like that in Romans 8, 24. He says, for in this hope, we were actually saved. Now, hope that is seen, he says, it ain't hope. That's my paraphrase. For who hopes for what he sees? If you see something, you're not hoping for it, right? It's, it's there, right? I'm not hoping for Scott right now. Homeboy's sitting right in front of me. I got him. I mean, I hope I got him, right? For who hopes for what he sees? This is how Paul finishes. But if we hope for what we do not see, Paul says, we wait for it with patience because we can be patient for the things that we know are coming. So if we do just a, a little recap through Esther, we see just how much could not be seen, right? We start even with the, the place where the whole book takes place, which is the, the, is the, the capital city of Susa in Persia, um, the hub of the kingdom and everything that happens. We learn that this is like kind of a brutal place. It's not a safe place. It's not a place that you just want to, you know, take the wife and kids and have a nice stroll through like the alleyways at night because there are things here that can't be trusted. Um, this is not a city that is out for your best interest, right? And then we, we see some of the cast of characters that have been in Esther. We see King Ahasuerus. Again, not just this benevolent king, but this is a ruler. This is a dictator. This is somebody that the people of Persia would have looked upon and classified as a god, right? He does not run a democracy, right? But he has power. He has absolute power. He can remove, he removed one of his original queens. Remember in chapter one, Queen Vashti, because she just decided not to be uh, set up and objectified anymore. He removed her. He eliminates officials. We saw that a couple weeks ago when he, when he gets rid of his top-ranking official. Literally, at just at, at the word of his mouth, he can get rid of people. He has that kind of power. And then we see our two main characters, Esther and Mordecai. Esther, who is she? Well, she's just this anonymous Jewish woman in exile who happens to rise to power as the queen of Persia. And she doesn't do it just all delicately and gently. 
She does it scandalously because to get to that place, she has to back off from everything that she stood have stood by as a Jewish person in terms of what was allowed and what God had mandated for the Jewish people in terms of their laws and their rules and what was acceptable to them as God's holy people. Um, she has to separate herself from all those things. And you have Mordecai, her cousin, uh, who, Esther's adopted father. This guy has a story, right? I mean, he kind of, he's the one that kind of kind of pushes Esther into this particular role. Maybe because he would like to see himself move up the chain of command a little bit. And he does. He actually rises to second in command. And then, of course, we have the villain of the story, really, who was this guy, this Haman, the king's former second in command, until he hatches this plot to extinguish the Jews, and it turns on him, and he ends up getting hung from the very gallows that he had that he had designed and built to hang Mordecai from. So more than anything else, as we look at the, the place and the cast of characters in Esther, there are two specific things, interestingly, that have characterized the lives of Esther and Mordecai, which at first, they seem at odds with one another. The first one is compromise. We've talked about compromise all the way through our book. Um, all through our series, we've tried to be real clear. Right? We've wanted to be clear in terms of not making Esther the hero of the story. Because the hero of every story and every book of the Bible is always God. It's not these failures that he uses like us to accomplish his purpose. They're not heroes. They are merely men. They are merely women. Esther is a compromised woman. Mordecai is a compromised man living in a culture where everything is not so black and white. And the easiest thing to do is to conform to the culture. It's kind of like, I don't know, us. It's kind of like today. It bears a lot of similarities. I mean, just think about, just for a minute here, think about some of the subtle ways we conform to our culture that have just become common. Like we don't even think about, right? Think about your device. I mean, most of us barely question the addiction we have right now to our devices. I mean, some of you all aren't going to even be able to resist checking Twitter or Facebook for the duration of God willing this 35-minute sermon, right? I mean, it's not a mindless activity. That's what we're learning about our devices. It's not just a mindless activity. It has a shaping effect on our minds and hearts, and we have no idea what kind of long-term compromise that it's actually having on us emotionally, spiritually, or physically. Although the signs are there and they're like, you know, doing tests and trying to figure out like, what is, what's it gonna look like for all of us zombies in 20 years after we've been like looking at this device, you know, week after week, day after day, hour after hour. I don't know, but it's not looking good is what I'm saying. It's not looking really great. But those are some ways that we conform ourselves to the culture. You know why I know that? Well, because when I'm sitting, you know, at the airport waiting for my, for my plane to take off, like we're all sitting there like this. It's not like somebody walks in and goes, oh, there's all the unbelievers. Oh, and there's the other, there's the believer with his phone, right? Like, like I'm not standing out as any different to them because I got my eyes drilled into my device. Do you guys, are you guys feeling me? You guys are all looking at me like, man, we are not tracking with you. We don't even have phones, Ronnie. Like this whole thing you're talking about is squarely you. That's not true. That's not true at all, right? But that's what I'm trying to say. So like that kind of, that kind of conformity is commonplace to us. And we see that because conformity to anything that the world starts deeming as common ends up in some ways compromising what God has set us apart to actually be. Does that make sense? So we see compromise. 
as one of the characteristics of Esther Mordecai in the book of Esther. Here's one of the other things we see as we're sort of setting ourselves up for today's passage. Secondly, we see providence. We've talked about providence. God's name, oddly, is never mentioned in the book of Esther, yet we see his providential influence undergirding uh, everything. Somehow, all right, despite the compromises of Esther and Mordecai, God continues to work through the ordinary and mundane events of their lives and, and the crazy and the dramatic events and the scandalous events of their lives too. And this tells us something surprising and it tells us something hopeful about God, which is that he is always working for his glory, which means our compromise, I need you to hear this, man. Our compromise and our faithlessness cannot deconstruct God's mission. Dude, let that give you some hope today. Now listen, that doesn't mean that our compromise and faithlessness doesn't affect us, right? Think about Moses. At some point, Moses rebelled against God in front of the people of Israel when God told Moses to speak to the rock to bring out a spring of rushing water that the Israelites needed. Moses was a little angry that day. He was a little fed up and he got his staff and he struck the rock and said, and God still had the rock gush out the spring of water that the people needed, but God was not pleased with Moses. And because of that, God kept Moses from ever entering the promised land. I mean, are you kidding me? That dude takes those people 40 years through the wilderness and he's the guy that doesn't get in. He's the faithful guy. One mistake. He's the guy that doesn't get in at the end. Well, God does what God pleases. God kept Moses from ever entering the land. But the bigger question is, did God keep his promise? Did the Israelites eventually enter the land? They did. But Moses' faithlessness kept him from personally experiencing it. And this is what, this is my point, is that disobedience always costs, but it never costs God his sovereignty. It costs us, but it doesn't cost God his sovereignty. So compromise had caused the Israelites to go into exile, but it didn't put God into exile, which is why he's working all the way through this story, which is why there's hope. So today we pick up with a new edict written by Mordecai, signed by the king, which now gives the Jews permission to not only defend themselves against their enemies, but to go on the offensive and completely destroy and annihilate anyone that threatens their existence. And what the Jews are given here, of course, is a hope for deliverance. So let's pick up in chapter nine, and I'm gonna read through verse uh, 19 right now, and it says this. <coughs> Excuse me, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. And the Jews struck all the enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed 
oh man, uh, Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisia and Aridia and Vesatha. I don't know, you guys can clap or I can just take a break here right now after that. <clears throat> Verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? Because it shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. So there were still people, let me just cut in right there, there were still people left that were going to attack the Jews, that still had it out for the Jews. Esther is saying, give us one more day, would you, to go after these guys. And then she says, and let this 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa, and the 10 sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of, uh, for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Let's just stop right there for one second because what we're seeing here is that the Jews are fulfilling their deliverance, Right? They get to destroy their enemies. The enemies attempted to gain mastery over them. What does it say? It says the reverse occurred. They gained mastery over their enemies. It says in verse two, nobody could stand against them. Why? Because fear of Mordecai had fallen on all the people that weren't on the side of the Jews. And not only that, but everybody in the king's court was like, this Mordecai is powerful. We need to be on his side. We need to be on the side of the Jews. Remember the last chapter, it said that people in all the provinces were self-identifying as Jews because they knew that this was bad news for anybody that couldn't be considered a Jew. So fear of Mordecai had fallen on them because he was rising very quickly as a very powerful man in the kingdom. So we see the number killed in Susa that those, over those two days was 800 and the number killed in the provinces was 75,000 people. So there was no messing around. God gave the Jews an opportunity to defend themselves against their enemies and they destroyed their enemies. And not only that, but God has also raised up a ruler within their own ranks that would again prove to be somebody that would be for their good and for their welfare. Let's pick up in verse 20 because now we're going to see after the Jews destroy their enemies, this annual day of feasting and celebration is declared. Picking up in verse 20, it says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. 
obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Verse 23, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamatatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, He gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. That's how important this holiday is that is being established for the future of the Jewish people. Verse 29, then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. And then chapter 10 says, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is God's word. So we see that this annual day of feasting is declared after the Jews destroy their enemies. A day needed to be kept to commemorate the day that turned them from sorrow into gladness. So it was this feast that they called the Feast of Purim after the term Pur, which were the lots that were cast originally in a plot to completely genocide them. So we see the way this thing was completely turned around for them. And it was a feast, again, it says that all were to be included in. So one of the characteristics of the feast, it kind of reminds you a little bit of Christmas, but with food, they were to send gifts of food to one another. The poor were to be included in this. So this was something that was to be widespread. It wasn't just exclusive for the kingdom or the people that lived in the city or the people that made their way around the courts. And so what happened was letters were sent so that this would be known in the kingdom of something that needed to be kept without fail. There was an importance placed on this feast of gladness and rejoicing. It was saying, hey, we're sending this thing up and every year this is going to happen. And then we finish, of course, learning that Mordecai becomes great ultimately in the kingdom of Persia. 
and not great for greatness sake, but he used his power for good and for the welfare of his people and for the flourishing of the Jewish nation. So that's our final overview of everything that happened at the very end as the Jews destroyed their enemies um, with the hand of God sort of silently undergirding all of their moves and then ending with this feast now that has been declared and in fact is still kept to this day. And so when we step back a little bit, we see something very interesting. We see what we talked about in the beginning. We see this stream of hope that is riding through, that is riding through the center of all the different movements that were being made all the way through this book. That when you just read the book at face value, or if you were somebody that didn't know the end of it, um, it just sounds bleak. And you just don't know where this thing is going. In fact, it sounds a lot like life, right? Because last time I checked, none of y'all know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And I don't know what's going to happen Tomorrow, I'm a pastor. I don't have any like I don't have any extended revelation for you, right? It's not crystal balls. It's not fortune cookies for us. God doesn't give us just sort of this panoramic view of everything that He has laid out for our lives tomorrow. He asks us to trust Him today for whatever He's going to ordain for tomorrow. That's what creates trust, which leads to this thing called hope inside of us. So what does the book of Esther then tell us about how we need to understand hope? What is it telling us here? Well, I think it is telling us that hope always means this. Number one is that we are as good as saved. I'm going to unpack this. We are as good as saved. The Israelites feasted when they found out they could defend themselves, not because they couldn't wait to break out their swords, right? That wasn't what it was, but because they trusted the one who was now ruling over them. When they knew that there was now somebody that replaced Haman that was for their good and for their welfare, it gave them a measure of hope and made them feel like, hey, it's like the battle's already over. We got this thing. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are always as good as saved. That doesn't mean that there aren't battles in your life. It means that in Christ, we fight our battles in a war that's already been won, just like the Israelites. See, God was, God was never going to lose this battle. He was never going to lose this battle because it was part of his redemptive plan. The Jewish people were the family line that Jesus would be born into. So God was always going to preserve his people for the day he was going to provide a deliverer for them in Christ. That was always going to happen. So in that sense, like the Israelites, we are always as good as saved. It's kind of like the phrase, we're as good as done. You ever worked on a project? You get to close to the end and you say, oh man, it's great. We're as good as done. What does that even mean? Let me throw out these things. We don't even know what they mean. What does it mean to say I'm as good as done? It means that we can endure to the end because we know that the job is all but completed. We can see it. We can trust it. That is the truest thing about your life if you're a Christian today. You are as good as saved. Listen, not because the end has come, because it hasn't, but because you can endure to the end when it does come because Jesus has already won the war. You know those shirts that you can buy that say keep calm and carry on? No, you can't. 
Nobody gets to keep calm and carry on until we know that that calmness and that carried onness has been delivered to us from a savior who allows it to be so in our hearts. So yeah, keep calm and carry on. That's the hope for the Christian. Speaking to the Corinthian church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. It's yes for us. God will do what God is going to do. And Paul says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That's why when we sing here, it's not just singing some melodies that we're all gonna walk out of here and forget or that are gonna get stuck on an endless loop in our head that doesn't mean anything. That's why the words that we sing are not just pop songs. They're not just frivolous. They have something concrete for us to walk out of here with and hold on to because it's holding on to us. Paul says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You are as good as saved. Just haven't reached the culmination yet. But that's hope. Because that culmination is coming. Two, hope means we gain something greater than the world's plunder. We gain something greater than the world's plunder. Notice that all through the battle it says the Jews laid no hand on the plunder. The Jews didn't need stuff. They needed salvation. Your salvation, who is your savior, is what Paul describes as this surpassing worth. That's what the Jews needed. They needed to be saved. The Jews had a particular perspective that we need to pray for. We need to pray to have that perspective that there is something greater than the world's plunder because we've tasted it and we want more of it right? We were at a conference once years ago, me and Melissa with some couples. We were in this, we were in this really foodie town, right? Where they had all these amazing restaurants. She's smirking right now. She knows what I'm going to say. And so we're out. We have all these crazy restaurants. We got all the, we're with all these couples and we're like, oh man, where should we go? And one of them said, how about Applebee's, right? Now listen, I'm not snobbing out here on Applebee's. Nothing against Applebee's. I've had plenty of fine dining experiences at Applebee's. Over the years, there will be many more to come, right? But we were in a place where there was something better, something that tasted better. Sorry if you're like the manager of Applebee's out there. This is, we're, literally, we're destroying you right now, right? And if this couple would have tasted the better, they would have never wanted to go back to Applebee's. When you consume Jesus instead of the world's plunder, you will acquire a greater taste for the things of God. You will acquire a greater taste for hope because Jesus embodies that definition. See, hope isn't some just ethereal term. We're just like, you know, we're just kind of clenching our fists and we're getting that look on our face and we're just, man, you know what? If I just hang on, if I just hang on. No, 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 no. Jesus is hanging on to you. That's the hope. The hope is a person. That's the hope. And he's something greater than the world's plunder. Romans 5, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of what? Of the glory of God. Not only that, Paul says, just wait, there's more, right? But we rejoice in our sufferings 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And here it is. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So rightly defined hope means we gain something greater than the world's plunder. This is what it means. The taste buds of our heart are transformed and changed in our lives. That's what it means that we have something greater than the world's plunder. And God allows those taste buds to change over time as we experience more of the glory and the realness and the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. And finally, hope means we can feast because we will feast. We can feast because we will feast. This was a mandatory feast, right? They were obligated, said the word obligated like 56 times, I'm exaggerating, but they were obligated to keep it just like they kept their, it says their fasts and their time of lamenting. It's so curious that Esther said that. You gotta keep this feast. You gotta have this time of celebration. I know you're trying to get back to your fast. I know you're, you're gonna be really staunch in keeping your times of lamenting, which is what they did back then, but you are obligated to keep this mandatory feast. In other words, this feast was not optional. Listen, nor was it looked upon as frivolous or less important than fasting or lamenting. And that's no different for us. Every week, we, what do we do here after the service? Well, we do what we call a community feast. I know feast might be putting it strongly, all right? I get it. But it's what it represents for us. Why do we even do it? Why do we do this? That's money in the budget, right? We have to have a team that like does this thing every week, right? It doesn't just happen. Like, I don't know if you guys know this, but when you walk in in the morning, we don't have like these magic like kitchen counters where the, the food just sort of like sprouts out of the wood magically. I mean, it takes money and time and talent. It takes work, right? So why do we do it? Is it just some cleverly strategic way to keep you all at church longer, right? Of course not. Well, maybe a little. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. Like the Feast of Purim here, our feast points to a greater feast that will come in heaven with a greater deliverer than Esther. And that's what that feast was for them. So that's why we feast. That's why we Sabbath, if we want to draw this thing a little bit wider in, in what our feasting is indicating to. We can feast because we will feast. And even this morning, we are not just feasting on food. You guys get that. We're not just feasting on food. As good as that is, it's not good enough because this afternoon, we're all going to be hungry again. We feast on much more than food every Sunday after the services. You guys have to get that. We are feasting on more than food. We feast on the blessings of Christ. Look around you if you're not sure what those are. We feast on fellowship. We feast on grace. We feast on mercy. We feast on compassion, on patience, on peace, on joy, on kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We feast on the fruit of the Spirit that we experience through the family of God. That's what keeps us coming back again because our brunch ain't that great. It just isn't. And that's why Sabbath, this thing that we do where we stop and we pause and we rest is so important for us as a church body. That's why resting and rejoicing is vital to our spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being. Esther wasn't saying, man, I just really want to make sure we have that party every year. There was a reason for it. We can feast 
because in Christ we will feast someday for eternity. So what do we do? Well, we rehearse those realities. And I need you to listen. God is not more happy when you're working than when you're resting, feasting, and Sabbathing. Dude, I just went there. Listen, God is not more happy when you're working than when you're resting, feasting, and Sabbathing. He's just not. We wrongly think that the most holy thing we can do as Christians is work and be semi-miserable all the time about it. But Esther reminds us that to ignore feasting and Sabbathing isn't pleasing to God any more than having a child who refuses to rest and play ain't gonna please you as a parent. That's no good either. Nobody wants that. Why do we think God is somehow happier with us when we are kind of running a low grade of misery and overwork? That is not what we get from God's people in the scriptures. So that's why feasting and Sabbathing is such an important thing for us. That's why we eat so gosh darn much here at the church. That's why we gather together to do things like rest and recreation. And even when we're working, we're, we're, we're doing it in a way that causes unity and fellowship and some measure of fun. Jen Wilkins says this, makes a quote about Sabbathing. She says, families that prioritize Sabbath fix their eyes on and find their identity in Christ, recognizing that their greatest potential for missed opportunity lies not in neglecting activities, but in neglecting time, lots of it, spent together as a family in worship, rest, and community with each other. Because time, she says, is our most limited resource. And how we allocate it reveals much about our hearts. Our time, she says, our time usage should look radically different than that of the unbelieving family. Can we say that? We must leave time for slow afternoons, for evening meals where we pray together and we share our faith and struggles, for Sunday mornings of shared worship. God ordains Sabbath for our good and for his glory. And then she says this, may our homes be places where Sabbath rest is jealously guarded, that in all things God might have preeminence even over our schedules, she says. And so how do we begin that process? We begin it here because worship is the entrance to rest. Worship is the entrance to rest. That's why we Sabbath. That's why we feast every week at Substance because it's the meal God has provided to sustain and sanctify us as we continue in hope to count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's how God leads us from sorrow into gladness until that day when there is no more death, there is no more mourning, there is no more crying. So we see this contrast as we close Esther. We see this compromise and this faithlessness contrasted with this hope and this faithfulness of a God who in actuality never abandoned Esther in Mordecai. And when they faced their greatest fears and when they faced their greatest troubles, these two people just literally laced and compromised and scandal and sin were able at some point to look to God for their deliverance, look to God for their hope. 
not take any of the plunder, but remember who it was that they needed beyond any of the plunder that would provide them with any sort of temporary satisfaction. And that's what we need to learn from Esther. We need to learn from Esther what we learn from any book that we preach in is that in the end, God satisfies through the good news of Jesus Christ. God is our satisfaction by the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. If that is not your hope, I would love to talk with you about that. There'd be no greater joy than if I could sit down after the service and say, tell me about your hope. Where is it? Is it there? Let's pray. Let's talk together. Would you consider doing that if this is not something that grips you yet? But yet right now you're thinking, but wait, something's happening. I understand what you're saying. This is making sense to me. And I want to know more about this real and this true and this hopiest of hope. So would you do that? And let's pray together. God, we thank you for hope. We thank you that we're not really going to be able to open up your word and find an absence of it because everywhere we open your word, we see you and you are how we defined hope, Lord. And it's not some ethereal thing. It's not some mist in the air. It's a person that came down and lived and died and rose again. But a person who had a personality, a person who walked the streets and the roads, had conversations with people, a person that felt pain, a person that felt loneliness, a person that was fearful. Lord, we have Christ to be the pinnacle and the object and the sustainer of all of our hope. So God, would you remind us of that today? Would you remind us that, Lord, we have a deliverance in Christ, Lord, that allows us to not seek after cheap, fragile, collapsible hopes? Would you remind us and strengthen us once again, Lord? And if we are somebody who's never, ever received that hope of the good news of Jesus Christ, if we've never repented of our sins, if we've never truly come in to a relationship with the creator of the universe, God, I pray that you would do something in those hearts this morning. I don't know what you will do, but I pray that you would do something and that a life and a light would be sparked and given so that we would have another person, another persons that are part of our family of faith, that can be part of our weekly time of worship, that can be a part of our weekly time of entering that rest, that could be part of our daily lives of feasting and celebrating and rejoicing because we are not a people without hope. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this truth, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.